Man, we serve an extraordinary king. We just got to put words to that. And um, those words should drive our hearts and our minds uh, to shout to the one, to the king, the only king, Jesus, be all glory and honor and praise and might and power and, and, and everything because he is in fact worthy of it all. Of what? Everything. Of everything. And so we come here today to gather up, to be reminded of the king we serve, the king who we belong to, the king who has made us more than servants. He has made us children. That's all I got. <laughs> because that's so profoundly profound that you and I can't actually put thought to it in such a way that we would be able to fully grasp what that means. And we got to, in our own feeble way, put some words to that and be reminded. So that's why we are here uh, to, to do that. There is an event uh, that takes place recorded in the gospels while Jesus was on the planet, uh, specifically uh, with some of his closer disciples. The event is recorded uh, in several places, but in the book of Matthew, it is recorded as one of those places. Uh, and in the book of Matthew, in chapter 16, we encounter this event. This event takes place in the region of Caesarea Philippi, which is outside of the comfort zone of the Jewish people. Uh, they are in an uncomfortable space because the land and the people in which they are currently walking when Jesus has this conversation is a space that feels uh, like it is unclean, unsafe, dangerous. It is where darkness and death reigns and they are outside of the safety net of, of their little bubble in which they live. So Jesus has taken them into this space and as far as we know from history, uh, he goes up on the hillside or mountainside overlooking the region of Caesarea Philippi. Uh, and he has this conversation with the disciples. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So the first part of this conversation, Jesus is both declaring and affirming a truth that is necessary for the disciples of his time and for the disciples of our time, us, to have great clarity on. We need to know who this person Jesus is. And what he is declaring here in the language he so beautifully uses and the language that God gives Peter to use back to Jesus is this. Who do you say the son of man is? That was a terminology in the prophetic spaces. Jesus's favorite thing to call himself that speaks to the Messiah who has been prophesied who would come. And then that Messiah prophesied to reign on a throne of King David forever is also prophesied to be a king. And so we know this. Uh, and so Jesus says, who do you say I am? Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Christ and the son of the living God. So there is now a declaration here that he is more than just a Messiah more than just a great king. He is in fact divinity itself, God himself, the son of God. When Jesus said, who do they say the son of man is? Who do you say? So in this, Jesus declares to them and to us, 
I am that king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. I am that guy. I am your creator and sustainer. I am God in the flesh. All this is captured in this brief little moment of conversation. It would be far more intricately unpacked over the rest of Jesus's time on the planet and uh, the spirit of God inspiring the authors of scripture. But here is this pure, beautiful declaration. I am your king. That is right. And, and, and how true is this? Is it true because Peter said it? No, what does he say? Peter, you didn't come up with this. I want to tell you how true this is. That the thing you just said was actually said through you by who? God. Look at what he said. God says, who, does the, who do you say the son of man is? Using a terminology that creates the prophetic connection to his being who he is. And then God says back to God himself through Peter. Yes, you are. And then he goes, yes, I am. You should catch this because it's important because for us, it goes, are we clear that he is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the God of the universe, creator and sustainer of all things? Okay. And, and, and whose King is he? Ours. Ours. Okay. Okay. So he's established that. And now he says something incredible in response to this verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Now look, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. So this is an interesting descriptor of the purpose to which he is establishing his church at least for a season uh, we find out much more later as the scriptures unfold and Jesus teaches us more. But his starting point of the purpose of establishing the church is interesting, is it not? Because he could have said, knowing what we know of Christ, the work he would do, the power he holds, who overcomes death? Jesus does. Who makes all things new? Jesus does. Who uh, finishes every good work? He does. Uh, who is ultimately the redeemer of all things? He is. Do uh, we need to be part of the story of redemption? No, we don't. He's got it covered. So you would think he would say here, yep, I'm your king from my kingdom. And when I'm done doing my work, I will take you to my kingdom. You all will dress up in princess dresses and tuxedos, and we will have a grand party. My castle's beautiful. The lawns are incredible. You're going to love it. I'm going to make my people, my church, and I'm going to take them home. He could have said that. It wouldn't have been inappropriate. Would have made sense. Hey, I'm going to rescue you all, and then I'm going to take you to my kingdom, and we're going to have a blast. Which is that part of our story? Yeah. Like three of you are like, I, I, I think so. <laughs> you should read the rest of scripture. It's incredible. It's a part of our story, okay? But here he says, I'm establishing my church and my church, the gates of hell, death and darkness will not prevail against my church. What does that sound like he's setting the church up to be? An army. That's right. That's right. An army. It feels that way, doesn't it? My church is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. That's an army. That's an army. And we will find out, in fact, that the totality of the story of the unfolding New Testament is this, that his kingdom is coming the kingdom of light, life, and darkness, and it is invading every bit of death and darkness until there is no more death and darkness, and he has made us in part to participate with him in that. So he says, church, I want you to bring my kingdom that is now in you, with you, you're part of, to the very gates of death and darkness itself, to the gates of hell, and then I want you to join me as we shove those gates backwards until they are no more. This is the statement he makes here. Later on, Jesus will be on another mountainside in a different context from the one he is in Matthew 16. And in Matthew 28, the end of this particular gospel, uh, it's, it, it records it this way, Matthew 28, verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee 
to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. A story for another time. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. So here Jesus declares in practicality what it looks like to take his kingdom and move his kingdom into every space. Go into how much of the world? All of it. And tell how many nations and people? Everyone. Of what? Of me and my kingdom. Uh, inviting them to be followers of me, uh, children of my kingdom, teaching them what it looks like to live in my way, to follow my commands. This is the mission to which we are called. It is not a mission uh, of, of, of sitting quietly and passively alongside as Jesus completes redemption and then we are the recipients of redemption. It is a participatory mission in which he does all of what I just said, but he allows for us to be part of the grand wonder of getting our hands involved in redeeming impossible things. It's crazy what we get to be part of. And this is what is unfolding. Now, interestingly enough, as we establish a context of the purpose of what God would say he made this thing called the church for, we start getting the idea that it feels more about a group of soldiers going to war than it does a club who's going to have a great grand meal, right? And it feels more like a mission to go and accomplish with him that feels and sounds dangerous. Here's what I want you to do. Go to wherever there is death and darkness and then shove on it. What does death and darkness do when you shove it? It bites back. It doesn't even shove back. It just bites back. So it's a dangerous, it's a dangerous thing, but we're called into it. Now, interestingly enough, the authors of the New Testament use language on several occasions that speak to this clarity that we're not part of a club or we're not part of a kingdom where the king does everything and we show up for the party. We are part of a kingdom where the king does everything. That is true, but restores to us our God-created purpose to participate with him in bearing his image by doing what he does with him and winning because he wins. Lots to unpack there for another time, but it's incredible. And so Paul in one of these occasions, writes to Timothy. In the second letter, he writes to Timothy. And listen to the language he uses to describe our part in this story. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. You then, my child, he's speaking to Timothy, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses in trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also, sharing in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So look what Paul does here. Knowing and understanding that Jesus has, produ has produced, made his church for mission for a season, the author now to Timothy, Paul, writes using language that comes with mission. We are like soldiers, like elite athletes competing for a prize. And so we need to think that way. It's fascinating to me when you put the context of a mission on the table, uh, you suddenly start finding yourself in worlds like the military or elite athletes. Those are the places, even in our cultural context, where we are most familiar with the idea of having a mission and chasing after it together. When you think about the military, this is what the military is established for. And then within the military, there are a multitude of units and each unit within the military is established for a particular purpose. Each unit having an expertise that is designed for a mission that needs to be accomplished in order to ultimately keep everyone safe, win the war, etc. 
I am watching a series right now on um, Apple TV, I think it's on, called Masters of the Sky. Uh, it's a new series that is set in the Second World War, and it follows the story of the uh, soldiers that flew the uh, B-2 bombers uh, to, to bomb certain targets. And the extraordinary courage it took to fly into a space where 30 bombers would fly in and maybe three would make it back. And so day after day, night after night, choosing to go into where you knew you'd likely not come back, right? And before each flight that they took, there was a briefing. And this is typical in any military context. There's a briefing because you don't just gather the unit up and say, guys, I want you to fly into enemy territory. I want you to do some stuff while you're there, create some damage and then come home, do it any way you want, hope to see you back. Can you imagine? Can you imagine like uh, all of you, every man for himself, go have some fun, high five. That's not how it works. When you are going to go into a place uh, where you need to strategically defeat an enemy, you have a very particular mission established by someone who knows and understands what's going on. And then you gather in a room for a briefing. In that briefing, this happens in the series constantly. They gather in a room. This is in the Second World War. So they have a whiteboard with a curtain over it instead of an LED, right? And what they do is uh, they gather up and then the commanding officer or leadership says, okay, this is our mission for tomorrow's flight. And they pull the curtain back. And as they do, there is a distinct mission. The mission is very specific. For example, one of the missions was there is a factory that makes ball bearings uh, in the heart of enemy territory. The ball bearings make tanks roll. If the tanks can't roll, then less of our soldiers on the ground die. So we need to, we need to bomb the ball bearing factory so that they can't make more tanks. There's the mission. It's very specific. If everything else we talk about in this room uh, ends up being done, but the mission is not accomplished, we have, we have missed the boat, right? The mission is what the focal point needs to be. We, we need to bomb that factory. That's what we need to do. We don't need to bomb these things or these things. And there's other things we don't want to bomb, but that factory we need to bomb. This is where the factory is. This is what it looks like from the sky. This is how it's going to, there it is, the mission. What is the mission? To bomb the factory. Then after that, they say, okay, now there's all these lines on the board, red lines, blue lines, yellow lines. And that is the vision or the plan, the clarity. It's them saying, hey, listen, uh, we have a mission that we need to accomplish. But in order to accomplish that mission, we have set a plan of active actions that we need to keep doing. And if we do them, then the likely result is that we will end up accomplishing the mission. Yes, sometimes you don't accomplish the mission. Yes, sometimes you don't win the game. But your plan is not set in motion to lose or to blow the mission, right? You don't go, I got a great plan. Let's make a plan where the factory's here and we fly to Africa. That way we know we won't bomb the factory. Nobody does that. So the plan is always with the intent that if we affect these actions, these things, then what should happen is that the mission should be realized. And then after they're done with that briefing, everybody's on the same mission. We understand the mission. We're clear on the mission. And then we're clear on the plan and we're clear on who plays what parts in the plan. Then as they get ready to head out, they are reminded regularly of who they are. And they are reminded of who they are by a set of values or a code of conduct that was drilled into them from the day they became a soldier until now. You don't need to redo the brief on the values or the code of conduct. You just say certain things. We leave no man behind. That's a code of conduct. It is a value and it says something. Or we stay in formation no matter what because we have each other's backs. These are the kinds of things. In, in our military context, uh, different units or different military institutions have codes of conduct. Uh, in the Marines, they have a code of conduct or a set of values. And, and you don't have to remind a Marine of these values. You don't have to say, all right, let's, uh, in, the, in the debriefing, let's, let's talk values for a second and let's, let's cover these. 
They just know it because it's been drilled into them. A Marine makes sure under all circumstances that they are a person of honor. A Marine makes sure under all circumstances that they are a person of courage. And a Marine makes sure under all circumstances that they are a person of commitment. Every Marine always faithful. These are statements that are part of that military branch. And this gets drilled into them because it represents the identity in which they live. It is not about the behaviors. It's not about honor or about courage or about commitment. It's saying a Marine is someone that's honorable. That's a part of their identity. A Marine is someone that is courageous. You don't get to be a Marine if you are not courageous. So there's a set of behaviors that demonstrate your identity as courageous. If you don't behave in this set of behaviors, then you are forgetting who you are. They don't say Marines, Marines don't behave that way. In the military, when someone's outside of the set of values, you don't say, you remember, we don't behave that way. They say, you're a Marine. You notice that? And now the, now the next sentence is, and Marines don't, because your identity is established. We just watched the Super Bowl uh, recently, some of us, I'm sure, um, and uh, two strong teams fighting it out. Uh, this is the other space we're familiar with as it relates to this reality that there is a mission and then there is a clarity of a, a, a vision, a set of plans, and then there is a code of conduct, a set of values. So what, it, what was the mission uh, that each of the teams on that field had uh, on Sunday last week? Win the game. Very simple. The mission is win the game. Win the game. That's the mission. Okay. If you forget everything else that we've learned, you definitely need to try to win the game. Now, what was fun to watch is uh, just the, the experience that you watched unfold between the coaches and the players as they minute by minute uh, tried to figure out how on earth to win the game. They clearly had no plan and no strategy. Uh, and so, you know, the coach was like, I don't, I don't know what we should do next, but I, what, has anybody got any ideas? And then, you know, uh, the, 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 someone would pull a little thing and go, I have an idea. And then send the idea. Was that what was going on? No. No. How many videos do you think they watched before that game? How carefully do you think they analyzed every player on the other team? How well did they know how the defense functioned, how the offense functioned, how everything worked? How clear do you think the strategy was to win that game? You see, the commentator said it throughout the game. Well, Coach Reed is going to now do this, this, and this because of this, this, and this. And then this is, and then sometimes he'd do something like, that's brilliant. I bet they held that in their back pocket for the perfect moment. And they confuse, wow. But they're not going to do that again because it would only work once because of this. Everything about that game was a set of carefully planned out protocols based on the other team so that they could complete the mission, which was to win the game. One of the teams won, one of the teams lost, but both had a plan not to lose, but to win. And both fought hard and both moved toward the win because their plan was effective. And they actually said that at the end of the game. The, uh, the 49ers didn't lose this game. The Chiefs just won it. That means, here's what they're trying to say. One team wasn't weak and didn't have a plan. It's just that only one team could win. It happened to be that one this time. Both had a great plan. And then, interestingly enough, our elite sports teams uh, in our culture and in other cultures, uh, they do have a set of values, a code of conduct. How do we know? If you have been on any kind of streaming media uh, between last Sunday and this Sunday, only two names uh, are relevant in terms of what you would have seen. And so you, like me, you probably just stayed off uh, for the entire week. And those two names were simple, Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift. Yay. Um, so... Those were the two names. And a thousand different things said. But, but Travis Kelsey was specifically uh, constantly in the media, not because of Taylor Swift in this particular case, but because of an incident that happened, right? 
on the sidelines during the game uh, in a heated moment of lots of adrenaline in the Super Bowl. Travis Kelsey ran up to his coach when there was a fumble. He was angry at the fumble and he took that out in a un, uh, inappropriate way on the side of the field by bumping his into his coach. Andy Reid stumbles and he shouts at him and it's caught on camera. And the internet goes wild. Side note, how irritating that all of us feel the need and the right to comment on things we have no idea about. So fun. But that's okay, a story for another time. The point is this. It became an entire conversation. Is it okay that he did it? Should he have done it? He shouldn't have done it. I can't believe he did it. Our children shouldn't see that. It's fine that he did it. It's normal for sports. Back and forth. Leave him alone. Don't leave him alone. He deserves consequences. He doesn't. Andy Reid defended him. Andy Reid didn't defend him. He's not going to apologize. He apologized. And here's the point. The point isn't whether he should or shouldn't have done it, good or bad, consequences or not. The point is this that clearly that team and the NFL has a set of values, a code of conduct that says if you're an NFL player or if you're a chief, then when people look at you, this is who you are. And if you do things like this, that's not how we are. That's not who we are. We respect our coach. We hold our emotions in in certain areas like that. We don't shove. We don't fight. We don't do these things. This is not how the NFL works or this is not how the chiefs works. There's a code of conduct, a set of values. And because there is, we have a context for when behaviors are uh, saying this is who this identity, this person's identity is, or when those behaviors are saying you have forgotten who you are. I love that this particular incident created conversation because it said we all recognized that there is some code that was violated that we all know between coaches and players. It doesn't matter how big you are in the game, right? And because of that, we expect when you violate that value that you apologize. Perhaps there are some consequences. That's how it works. I love that they have a set of values because if they didn't, we wouldn't even notice the event because it would have no context. Who knows how they're supposed to behave? Who knows what's... No, no, no. There is a set of values. So in the military and in elite sports teams and really any sports teams in our culture, there is a mission. Then there is a set of, of va- a vision or, or plans that bring clarity, that accomplish the mission. And then there is a set of values by which the people live, not because those behaviors matter, but because those values communicate their identity. Jesus said, we are a a group, the church established to go to war against death and darkness. So it feels to me like we ought to gather up in a briefing and say, are we all clear on what the mission is? so that we don't find out on the back end of all this, oh, the mission was the, the factory with the bobberings. I was flying over Africa. And, and I think we should all be clear, if we're going to accomplish that mission, perhaps here's the vision. Here's, here's the set of things that if we do these things, we believe they will ultimately result in this mission being realized. And then we should be clear, should we not, on who we are and what that then means in terms of our values, our code of conduct. So that as we together live out the mission that God has called us to, we're all on the same page. It would seem silly, wouldn't it, that elite military teams and elite sports teams take all that time to debrief and get on the same page. And then we who are called to the greatest mission on planet Earth with the most consequence of all missions, eternal life or death, that we're like, good luck, high five. I hope it works out for you. See you next Sunday. That'd be crazy. And so we need to define that. So here at Mosaic, we have consistently and constantly been asking these questions over the years and defining them. You'll notice as I travel through now uh, where we are together so that you can say, if I'm part of this church, just know this isn't, this isn't like negotiable. If you, if you feel like you can be part of, if you're part of this church, this is what we're up to. This is how we're doing it. And, and we expect that we do that together, right? And you'll see, you're going to read this and go, oh, the, the, I already knew that. Good. This isn't new information. It shouldn't be. Hopefully not. 20 years in, I hope you say, we've been doing that forever. But it just helps us be reminded be cl- and clarify exactly where we're headed. So first and foremost, we need to pull the curtain back and say, ladies and gentlemen, 
If you're part of this unit, this expression of the global church here at Mosaic, here is our mission in words. This is what we're up to. This is what matters. If we don't accomplish this, then all the other stuff uh, is, is, is being done for no purpose. Here it is. Okay, here's our mission. We at Mosaic demonstrate our passion for God and his passion for people as we love God, love people, and serve the world. That's the mission. When you wake up in the morning, if you call this church home, this is what you're doing with us. This is what we're doing with you. We are demonstrating our passion for God and his passion for people as we love God, love people, and serve the world. Now, you might look at this and say, that's odd. The gates of hell aren't in this mission. And that's odd. Uh, the go into all the world uh, isn't in this mission. And that's odd. Uh, 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 make disciples isn't in this mission. And I'm like, ah, that, that's, that's not actually true. When Jesus spoke on the second hillside and said, go into all the world, make disciples of how many nations, all of them, teaching them to live my way according to my kingdom, to follow my commands, fascinating statement. How do we engage in having people uh, come out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light and thereby God's kingdom going everywhere. We go and we tell them about Jesus. We show them Jesus. We invite them to join. We love them like Jesus does. And we teach them to live by his commands. And we only do that if we are living by his commands. So this is what discipleship is. Live his way and help others live his way. Jesus in an encounter he had recorded also in the book of Matthew, said something incredible that clues us into this idea of what, it, what on earth Jesus does it mean that we would teach people to follow your commands. Oh my goodness, that's gonna take a very long time. In Matthew chapter 22, in verse 34, uh, this is recorded. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher or rabbi, which is the great commandment in the law? Which is the greatest of the commandments? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and a second is like it or in the language there, inseparable from it. That's what Jesus is saying. The second, you cannot ever have one but not the other. These come together. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then look what he says. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So all of the law, all of Jesus's way, all of Jesus's commands, all of the prophets, all of the spoken word of God, Jesus says, if you do these two things and if you teach these two things to others, then all of the law and all of my spoken command, the prophets, will begin to be realized in these two things. So we use all of the law and the, the spoken word of God to learn these two things. And as we do these two things, those things are fulfilled, right? What are those two things? Love God with all of yourself and love people, each other and the world uh, with all of what God has poured into you. Love your neighbor as yourself. The great commandment is to go into all the world to teach people what it means to love God and what it means to love others because God has now loved them so well. Which means what do we need to do? We need to be out there, look at it now, demonstrating our love for God. We didn't just say here, love God, love people. We said, what, what, is, our, what is our mission? To demonstrate our passion for God so that others would be like, who is this person you are so passionate about? And to demonstrate his passion for people as we, clear, love people, love God, love people, and serve the world. Wake up in the morning, do this, Mosaic. This is our mission, collectively, individually. Now, to, to do this, we have put some words around what we're calling our vision. You've heard it if you were here in January. The vision is the clarity we bring to the means by which we believe this mission will be realized uh, in the practicality of the things we do. 
Now, the reason vision and mission is sometimes confused in organizations is because vision is used in two different contexts and we have to choose which context we're using it in and clarify that. Sometimes vision is used as the big dream. If the mission is accomplished, then this becomes true and we use vision that way. In which case you start with vision. Vision is just the big dream. Mission is how you make the dream happen and then the values are how you live. But you can also use vision the other way around as the clarifier. That's what vision is, it clarifies, it brings sight. The plan, the means by which the mission is accomplished. We want to keep it simple around here, like the military, like an elite sports team. Have a mission, know how to do it, have some clarity, have a vision, and then know how we behave to demonstrate our identity. So here is our vision. This will be familiar to you. Again, four things. We are going to be a people that are equipped for the mission. What? If we're going to accomplish the mission, what ought we be? Equipped. If you don't know how to play football, you're not playing with the Chiefs in the NFL. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, I'm, I'm sorry, coach, just one quick question. What do I do with this again? You're the quarterback. I know, like, do I throw it or do I kick it? No. You got to know what you're doing, Right. We're going to be equipped. Now, this doesn't mean you're just going to get equipped. It means you are participating in becoming equipped. We, the leaders, are participating in equipping you, and you all are equipping each other. This is not a passive reality. You sit back and relax. We'll take care of this for you. This is what we do together to make sure that we are ready for the mission. And we are equipped by engaging in the connectivity, the abiding with Jesus. We are going to learn his word by his spirit in community so that we can love him fully and out of that love others. We're going to do that. We're going to work at that because that helps us accomplish the mission. We are going to share. Share what? Share the gospel. Share the truth of God. Share the kingdom of God. Share the person of Jesus with others. Why? Because the single most effective way to move the kingdom of God into the darkness is to go and take people who are currently dead in the darkness and bring to them the kingdom of light, life, and freedom and the king of that kingdom, Jesus, and see them come to know him and transition from death to life, from darkness to light, from bondage to freedom, sharing the actual gospel of Jesus, the person of Jesus with people so that they would have the opportunity by the spirit as he sees fit to come to know Jesus. Jesus is the primary means in which we advance the kingdom of God into the darkness. So if we are not sharing the gospel, then we are not advancing the kingdom in the most effective way that we can. So we're going to be a people that learn to share. We are going to be a people that multiply. Why are we multiplying? Because if we want to be a people that are equipping people, making disciples of how many people? all nations, then we need to go to where those people are as much as possible, east side of Orlando, west side of Orlando, south side of Orlando, north side of Orlando, Florida, the US, the world. And we need to establish gospel outposts, spaces that are locally engaging people in the mission, equipping them and having them equip others, sharing the gospel with them and others so that that continues. If you want to be a people that fulfill the mission to go into all the world and make disciples, you better be multiplying. We want to multiply. And then finally, we want to care. We want to demonstrate the gospel, not just declare it, but demonstrate it. Jesus said this a multitude of times, and then both Old and New Testament summarized this by saying, you know what God desires of you, a man? Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God. New Testament version, James. You know what pure religion looks like? Care for the vulnerable and stay unstained from the stupidity of the world. Trust God's way. This is how we are to live. So when we engage in these things, we are equipped, we're sharing the gospel, we're multiplying, we're caring for people, then we are demonstrating our love for God and his love for people or our passion for God and his passion for people as we love God, love people and serve the world. So this is how we're going to walk it out. Now, while we do, we need to be able to, like the NFL can and the Marines can and other military units can, we need to be able to say, who are we? Who are we? And as it concerns who we are, what does that then mean people should experience from us, see in us, notice about us? If we are these people, then they should notice some things about us because they'll play out as a consequence of who we are, a set of values, a code of conduct. 
This is not about the behaviors. It's about the identity that would flush out in these kinds of behaviors. And here is the set of values, the code of conduct that we want to live by here so that people will know who we are. Here it is. It's very, very simple. You're going to kind of be blown away a little bit here. Okay. We, first one, we follow Jesus. Jesus. You're like, oh, that, that seems pretty obvious. Yeah, it's pretty obvious unless you live in our culture, which has a 19 versions of what this means and 19 versions of what it means to be a Christian. And most people don't even know what it means to follow Jesus and they call themselves Christians. Uh, we are not excluded from that oftentimes. So we need to be clear together on what it means when we say we follow who? Jesus. Anyone else? Anything else? Any, no, we follow Jesus and we watch Jesus. We follow him. We don't just believe in him. We actually follow him. We follow Jesus. Then we are one. There's like two of you. You're nervous because you live in America and you're like, what does that mean? I don't know if I can be one with this person next to me. I mean, I'm married to them and it's hard. I, I get it, right? And what about the person I'm not married to that I don't even know? What if, what if they, yeah, one is hard. But then that's why, that's why we made it up here at Mosaic that I think being one might be a good idea. That sounds like, no, we didn't make it up. Who said that we are one? Jesus. Jesus did. How many times? A ton of times. In fact, he prayed, we'll get to this next week. His last prayer about what it means to be a follower of Jesus was this. God, I pray that you would make them one, that you would keep them one, that you would make sure they stay one, that they would never not be anything but one. God, as we are one, please make sure that they are one. Make just one, one, one. And then Jesus said to us, how are people going to know that you follow me? What's the primary way that they would know that? By your love for each other, which is not possible when we are not one. And so we here at Mosaic say, if we are followers of Jesus... That's what we say. Then we actually follow Jesus and we are actually one. We behave like we are one because we are one and we are gospel centered. That means that we don't just believe in the gospel. We have the gospel truth inform everything about our lives. We actually live by the truths of Jesus unpacked in the totality of scripture, which is the gospel in its biggest form. We actually orient our lives around the gospel of Jesus. We change the way we think and the way we live because of the gospel of Jesus. We are not just gospel believers. We are gospel centered. And then we are extravagantly hospitable. We are extravagantly hospitable. Do you know why we're extravagantly hospitable? Because we are the recipients of a God who is extravagantly hospitable toward us. And if that's how he is toward us, then we are going to be that way toward each other and to the world because that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And we are going to be fearlessly generous. Do you know why we're going to be fearlessly generous? Because we have a God who is so generous toward us that if you took the full extent of your imagination and the full extent of our collective imagination and you worked fully the rest of your life to try to fathom the magnitude of God's generosity to us, you would be incapable. He puts generosity in a category that we have no words to give it its due uh, right of what generosity is. So at a minimum, we feebly say, I want to be at least fearlessly generous. And then we have a God who came into darkness to redeem us. His crawling into a human body was a missional act that is beyond anything again that we could fathom. And so we are going to be fearlessly missional. There is a, a movie, a, another war movie that, that I love, um, set in the time right after 9-11. Uh, and it's a leaked special uh, ops unit that went into Afghanistan. They were the first unit in. And the commanding officer of that unit had just actually resigned his position as commanding officer. And he was getting ready to kind of go into regular desk work. And then 9-11 happened. And he comes running into the, 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 the military unit. And he says, I want back in. And the guy's like, you can't. And he's like, I want back in. Like, they, they, this just happened. 
And there's just a sense of like, I, I want to be on mission to protect the people I love and to bring about justice and, and, and do what needs to be done. There's this attitude in a soldier that's like, get me in. And then later on, they're on the base uh, before they're going to head out into Afghanistan, into hostile territory. And there's a mountain range and they have to go across the mountain range in a helicopter. But the helicopter's not designed to go that high in a mountain. And at that height, they don't know if the helicopter will survive or not, fail or not. They have no idea. So they're having this conversation, him with his unit. And he's like, look, the helicopter that's going to take us into Afghanistan is not designed to go that high. And they're like, what's going to happen when it does? We have no idea. Has anyone ever tested this? No one has. We are the test run. Is it going to fail and crash? Probably, maybe. We have no idea. So we, 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 we might not even make it to the mission. But if we don't go in the helicopter, we definitely don't make it to the mission. So what do you think the entire unit said? Let's go. Let's go. Let's get there. And then he's like, now, if we make it, by helicopter, we'll be stuck in hostile territory and left there on our own to do what we have to do. And the likelihood of returning is close to zero. And what do they say? Oh, well, in that case, I'm staying. No, let's go. Because that's what you do when your identity is, I've been trained to be on mission to keep people safe. And that's our calling, folks. We are not to be missional. We are to be fearlessly missional. When everybody, are daringly missional, when everybody else says that's too messy, we should say, oh, I'm so glad because we really wanted to do it. And they're like, what? Like, yes, get us in. Then maybe we'll die. Maybe the helicopter will crash. Maybe we'll never make it home. But we are on our way to a kingdom that is extraordinary. So live or die, it's going to be good. This is how we live. For the next two weeks, I am going to be unpacking very carefully these six values because we need to be very clear on what they mean. Next week, we'll do we follow Jesus, we are one, and we are gospel-centered. And the week after that, we will do we are extravagantly hospitable, we are fearlessly generous, and we are daringly missional. We're going to carefully look at each one and why we are these things in accordance with who Jesus is and why we're going to live this way. As we prepare to do that, I would ask you, if you call Mosaic home, that you would spend this week kind of getting yourself up to speed on these values and on the mission and on the vision so that at least in your mind, you've got a clarity of what it seems to mean. We have put all of these on our website now starting today. So those of you that took pictures, well done. If they're a bl bit blurry, don't panic. It is available to you on the website. Under each of these particular values, there is a paragraph, like the paragraphs under the vision. The paragraph describes very prayerfully and carefully what we mean by this particular value. Read it. Be familiar with it. Next week, we will unpack it here together, but make sure that you're familiar. This is available on our website, thisismosaic.org slash we, we together, W-E. Or just on our front page, it will be one of the featured realities. You can click on mission, vision, values, and it'll take you there. But this is mosaic.org slash we, and you will be able to quietly at your leisure work through all of these. If you call Mosaic home, I want you to know that this was the start of the briefing. The next two weeks is the rest of the briefing. We'll get back to the book of Hebrews after the briefing, but we're gathering up in the room, a military unit, an elite sports team uh, with a real king who we follow, who has established the church to storm the gates of hell. And we are gathering up to say, here's the mission. Here's how we're going to do it. And here's how we're going to behave while we're doing it because we belong to Jesus. That's who we belong to. And people are going to know it. And if you or I misbehave out of the values like our friend Travis Kelsey did in his moment of insanity, then we are going to honor each other by coming gently to each other and say, have you forgotten yourself? You're a follower of Jesus. I mean, come on, what's going on? And you're going to be like, whoa, that was, I was lost my head there for a second. It's okay. And then we're going to say, what do you owe the person you lost your head with? An apology. That's how we're going to roll. We're going to be gracious to each other to say, I'm not judging you. I know that that's who you want to be. You know who that, that's who I want to be. So help me and I will help you. And when we misstep, which we will, we'll call each other back. 
We'll get each other's eyes fixed back on Jesus. We'll get each other back in the game, the game that matters, the mission that Jesus has called us to. Church, buckle on up. We're gonna get out into that world and shove the gates of hell backwards by bringing the kingdom of God to bear on them until we take our last breath and go home, put those tuxedos and those princess dresses on and have a party with Jesus because it's coming. But in the meantime, we, we should not concern ourselves with the affairs of this world, but concern ourselves with the affairs of God's kingdom by living out his mission, fulfilled by the plan and values we have and making sure our identity is well known as we demonstrate our passion for God and his passion for people as we love God, love people and serve the world, being well equipped, sharing the gospel, multiplying gospel outposts as much as we can and making sure that we're caring for people. And while we do, they're gonna know that we follow Jesus and they're gonna know that we're one and they're gonna know that we are gospel centered and they're gonna know that we're extravagantly hospitable and they're gonna know that we're fearlessly generous and they're gonna know that we're daringly missional. And they're gonna see Jesus in and through us because he is in us, with us, and will work through us. Welcome to the mission, buckle on up, let's pray. God, thank you so much for your incredible love for us and the many ways in which you have already uh, given us such clarity that we have nothing to fear for your kingdom has come and your kingdom will come and you are the king and you will get the work done. But what a privilege it is that you have made us not just for the grand party afterwards, but to participate with you in the glorious work of bringing about life, light and freedom where there is death, darkness and bondage, the glorious work of redemption. God, give us the clarity and the courage to be able to live together in the mission that you've called us to doing the things that will bring that mission about as we live out our vision together and making sure that we hold each other with love and gentleness and some firmness to the values that define our identity in you. We love you. We thank you for your glorious love for us. To you, Jesus, to you, Jesus, be all honor and glory and majesty and power and praise now and forever and ever 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 and ever. Amen.